And you might consider this, um, this sermon like an epilogue to the testimony. Like that was really the, the meat of why you came, and this is just an epilogue to that. I think it will make sense as we go through. My question for us this morning for each one of us to consider is the title of the sermon, What is Something in Your Life That Needs to Be Put to Death? What is something in your life that needs to be put to death? And no, you can't use the name of someone who you drove here with this morning. I'm thinking of someone else. But last Sunday we examined uh, the words of First Peter where he sort of woke us up again in many ways to the reality that we're involved in a war against our soul. And I want to continue sort of concentrating on that war by examining this historical event in 1 Kings chapter 20, which I hope as we walk through will help you answer the question, what is it that you need to put to death? So let's get a little background here on 1 Kings 20. You remember there was Saul and David and Solomon. They were the kings over a united Israel. But after Solomon left his reign, after he died... It became a nation divided, so it was divided into two, north and south. The northern kingdom with its capital was Samaria, and the southern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem. And so if you were to read through the history books of the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, basically what you would see is this bouncing back and forth. Here's the king of Israel, then here's the king of Judah. Here's the king of Israel, here's the king of Judah. And you know that both of them eventually are taken over by northern kingdoms. But that's how that history works its way through those several books. And when we come to uh, the kings, generally they were poor leaders. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahab and his wife Jezebel were perhaps the most notoriously wicked of the leaders of the northern king, kingdom of Israel. And just to give you a sense of it, in 1 Kings 16, it says this, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, that was the first king of Israel who was not a good king, not only did he consider it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the king of Israel, all the kings of Israel before him. Then you know, the probably very familiar with a famous uh, event just two chapters later in 1 Kings 18. You remember Ahab gets his 450 prophets and then Elijah standing on the other side and they're all on this mountain and they've, they've made this, um, this um, uh, altar toward the Lord and they're saying, you know, whoever, whichever God can answer from the sky and bring down fire and burn up this sacrifice, that's going to be the real Lord. And so these 450 prophets march around and they don't get anywhere, obviously. And Elijah stands there by himself and this fire falls down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And we're all very familiar with that story. And 
You would think that would be the moment that the nation itself would begin to turn around and say, no, this this God that Elijah is talking about, he's the real God. But even at the very end of the story, Jezebel doubles down and says, Elijah, I put a bounty on your head. You're going to be dead tonight. And then in 1 Kings 19, Elijah runs away from Jezebel. So here we are in verse in chapter 20. And as if that history wasn't enough, the writer wants us to sort of pile on Ahab uh, in terms of exposing his failure as a leader, his failure to recognize God. And so let's just walk through this chapter. And sometime after this showdown in Mount Carl, the king of Syria, this is a northern uh, area, comes down and decides he's going to attack Samaria. His name is ben Hadad, and we're just going to call him Ben for this morning. He gathers together all these rulers in his area, and he's planning on coming down and attacking Samaria and Ahab. So verse, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 says this, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers to the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and your children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. And the messengers came back again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, verse 6, I will send my servant to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall, shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. So Ben makes this threat to Ahab. He's got the armies marshaled around the capital city. And then Ahab gives in. Ben says, what I really want is the best things that you have. And uh, Ahab gives in and says, okay, you can have the best things. Then Ben says, okay, I've got a weak ruler. I don't want just the best things that you have. I want anything I want. And I'm going to send in and whatever you want, I'm going to make sure I take that. Then Ahab says no. This is the only point in the story that he has a spine. And he says no. He gathers some people together. They say, don't do that. So they they gather together their armies, essentially ready to fight each other. And they position themselves. And you you get the sense that this is big army coming in. Ahab probably knew he was going to lose. That's why he gave in to the first demand. And now he said no. But it's still now a big army against a small army on Israel's side. And then the turning point in the chapter is verse 13, when it says, Behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So what seems like out of nowhere, this prophet steps in right before these two armies are going to go into battle. And Ahab can clearly see he's way outnumbered. And a prophet comes in and says, hey, I'm I'm carrying a message from the Lord. Behold, the Lord is going to fight for you. He's going to be on your side. He's going to show favor to you. And you're going to win this battle. And the reason you're going to win the battle, Ahab, is not because of anything you've done. 
is so that you would know for sure. I mean, if if chapter 18 wasn't enough here, you're going to be on the front lines and you're going to know that the Lord is God. So the prophet's coming in to say, pay attention, pay attention, Ahab. And it goes just as if you read the Latin, the next few verses, it goes just as the prophet would say. Ahab does defeat uh, king, the king, Ben, Ben-Hadad, and Ben-Hadad barely escapes on horseback, and he goes back to Syria. And then the prophet comes back in verses 22 through 30, and he gives another warning to, to Ahab. He says, because you didn't kill Ben, because he escaped, let me tell you what's going to happen. Ben's going to go back, and he's going to marshal another group of forces, and in the spring, he's going to come fight you on the plains. And he's going to defeat you there, he thinks. And that's exactly what happens. And if you look at verse 28. And the man of God came near. This is there now back in the second battle in the spring. And the man of God, a prophet, came near. And he said to the king of Israel, he says to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so really, it's just a repeat of verse 13. The same people are in place. The prophet comes again, says, you're going to win this battle, and you're going to win this battle because God is on your side, and he's trying to help you see who he is. If you looked at verse 29 and 30, you'd see that the battle happens. 100,000 Syrian soldiers are killed. 27,000 of them run back to some kind of city where the wall falls on them and they're killed. And Ben is inside the city in what must have been some kind of safe house. But he's surrounded now by Ahab's army. And so let's look at uh, chapter 20, verse 34. Ahab is sneaky. He sees that his life is in jeopardy and he understands he's got to make some kind of deal. And he says, look, if I can try to make some kind of deal, maybe I'll escape. And then verse 34, and Ben Hadad said to him, this is Ahab, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. So he's trying to make this deal with him. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus. In other words, I was trying to take over your country. Now you can come into my capital city and you can have capitalism there as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, hear this, I'm making this. I'm trying to extend. This is Ben Hadad. I'm trying to say I'd like this treaty to happen. And what should Ahab say at this moment? Well, what he says is, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with Ahab and he let him go. So he's foolish. Ahab then has one final encounter in this chapter with the prophet. Verse 38, the prophet's now coming back to say, Ahab, you've had two chances here and you've blown both of them. And now it's a moment of judgment. And the, and the king apparently passes along this particular way and the prophet dress, dresses up like a soldier, a wounded soldier. And so when the king passes by, he stops and he has this conversation with this prophet. But Ahab thinks he's a wounded soldier. And the soldier, who's this prophet, he makes up a story. He says, you know, somebody came and gave me a prisoner, and all I was supposed to do is watch that prisoner until the person got back. But, you know, I got distracted. 
And the prisoner escaped. Now, now what should I do? And here is Ahab. He's the king. He thinks he's talking to one of his own soldiers who's fought on his behalf. He's the one the prophet has come and said, Ahab, it's not going to be because of anything you've done. You're, I'm going to secure these two great victories for you. And the king could have easily just looked at this soldier who was the prophet in disguise and, and could have just said, you know what? I've done a lot of foolish things. But I can see you fought on my side and, you know, you let one prisoner go. Nope, no big deal. He could have extended some grace, but he doesn't extend grace. Instead, he says, hey, you've written your own sentence. You wrote a sentence when the guy came to you to say, hey, if I let this man escape, it'll be my life for his. And you let him escape. And so you're going to pay with your life for this letting this man escape. And so, verse 41, the prophet announces judgment on Ahab. He takes off his garb. Ahab sees that he's one of the prophets. And then he says to Ahab, sort of like Nathan does to David. Remember when Nathan comes in and he basically spins this yarn about a a little sheep? And David says, you know, what should happen? And then the prophet says, well, it's going to happen as you said, King David. And the prophet's looking at Ahab and says, you're the one that's guilty And Ahab, you've pronounced judgment on yourself. Verse 41, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. So this morning, for the rest of the sermon, I want to just make the obvious observations. We've now sort of read through this together. You could see these easily. So I'm just going to point out what's obvious in the text. Number one, the surprise of God's grace. The surprise of God's grace. Uh, Chapter verse 1 through 12 sets up this hopeless situation. Here's Ahab. He's a small man in, in this country. He's got some soldiers, but he doesn't have an overwhelming force. And we're set up in these first 12 verses to see that Ahab's on the brink of being uh, being destroyed. In fact, when he denies the second request by Ben, Ben responds back and says, because you won't give me everything I want, you and your whole country is just going to be dust by tomorrow. And so Ahab is in a very difficult position. And if you were just reading through this as a history book for the very first time and you just stopped at verse 12 and you thought to yourself, here's Ahab in chapter 16. He's already been pronounced as the worst king that they've ever had in chapter 18. You understand that he tried to take out Elijah, God's number one man, by 450 of his prophets. Then his wife got on Elijah so bad that Elijah had to run away. So here we are in chapter 20. And again, if you were just reading it through for the first time and you got to chapter, you got verse to verse 12 and you would say, you know what, Ahab, your time's up, bud. You had all these kind of chances, but your time's up. You're going to get crushed. You should get crushed. That's what you would anticipate. But then you get to verse 13 and and it blows you away. And behold, this prophet who seems to come out of nowhere. In an absolutely stunning reversal of what you might conclude, God moves towards Abraham with grace. It's the last thing you would have expected. This amazing grace is still flowing towards this wicked man. 
And although grace is all over the Bible, somehow God's grace is surprising every time you encounter it. I mean, you get knocked off your feet right here in this chapter. I can't believe God is still acting favorably to, of all people, this man. In Luke's gospel, his gospel seems to be this surprising gift of God's grace over and over again. Luke chapter 2, the famous Christmas passage that we read every, every year. After 400 years of silence, God and his angels make an appearance in the sky. And when they do, the shepherds fall down and they're terrified. Why? Uh-oh, God hasn't said anything for 400 years. He must be angry. Here he comes. And they're afraid. And the angels say, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. God is coming to people who are living in the dark, great darkness, and he's bringing grace. Just like Ahab, who's living in a great darkness, he's bringing grace. Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus. Remember little wee Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he couldn't see Jesus, so he climbed the sycamore tree. You remember this from your vacation Bible school songs. And so he runs out. He came to try to see Jesus. He couldn't get a good view because he's a short man. Plus, nobody likes him. He's the tax collector. And so he kind of gets shoved out of the crowd and he climbs up this tree. And what does Zacchaeus discover? He discovers that although he thought he was looking for Jesus, he discovers that Jesus was actually looking for him. It's so surprising. And you know it's so surprising because all the religious people there can't believe Jesus is going towards this guy's house. For grace. It shocks you. It, it, it stuns you every time you see it. Luke chapter 23. Jesus has just been nailed to a cross. They just lifted up him and the two people, one on each side. And Jesus doesn't have many breaths left. And as they put the cross down in the hole and Jesus is standing there or sitting there or hanging there with one of these final breaths, what would you say? This was one of your final breaths. Oh, I can think of a lot of things I'd like to say. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. See, every time you see grace, it's so surprising. It's, very, it's the very opposite of what you might have imagined. Philip Yancey in his book says, Grace is like water. It always flows to the lowest point. And so maybe you're here today and you're at a low point. Your, your sin seems overwhelming. Maybe you're one of the people that thought, gosh, if, if I go to church, lightning bolts are going to come down on me just if I step inside. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're just really faking it and you just wouldn't want anybody to know this whole hidden life that you have. And I would say to you, behold. Behold, grace is still flowing to the lowest point.
You're not too far away to be saved. You're not in too much darkness that the light can't penetrate. And if you're here and you're a mature believer this morning, you see yourself in 1 Kings, don't you? You're Ahab. You're the foolish one. You're the heartless one. You're the one that was given chance and chance again. You're the one who at your lowest point, grace continue to flow towards you. And you can celebrate this morning that God's grace found you. Amen. Second point, obvious point in the passage, the nature of sin. First, it's the surprising uh, movement. It's the surprising gift of God's grace. Secondly, the nature of sin. This really ties back to the passage in First Peter. And the nature of sin is demonstrated in the life of Ben-Hadad. And so I just want to highlight, gosh, I've got five points here. Just quickly sort of move through these and you just think, how is sin working in my life in that particular way? Maybe it's not each one of these ways, but there's some way I'm sure it's at work and you want to be noticing that. Sin is always expanding, number one. Sin is always expanding. Sin comes in like Ben and says, hey, this is what I would like. And you say, okay, I can give you that part. And whenever you agree to that, what does sin do? I'd like some more. Hey, that's not enough. Sin is always expanding. So there's no little sin. It's only a little sin on its way to get bigger. I had a college student come to me many years ago when I was doing Young Life, and he came into my office, and even though nobody was in my office, he double-checked these two doors that led to my office. Anybody there? Anybody around and I, I'd known him for a while. He seemed like a nice kid as far as I could tell. And he sits down. He's trembling. He said, Paul, my sin started out this way, but it's grown into proportions. I can't even believe. I can hardly even say it out loud what I'm doing now. And he, he thought he had a little manageable sin that wasn't ever going to ask for anymore. He's completely fooled by that. So sin is always expanding. Number two, sin, sinning, never quenches sin's appetite. Let me say that one more time. Sin never quenches sin's appetite. See, what happens in our mind is we say, just this one more time and then it'll be over. You have some kind of craving and you say, if I just satisfy this craving just this one last time, then it'll go away. And it does for the most part, does it not? Doesn't appear to go away, at least for a little bit of time. Well, okay, that's over. But what happens? It fuels the appetite. And now the next time you have a bigger appetite for it. And so often we think if I could just if I just give in to this one little thing, if I sin in this small way, then it really will prevent me from sinning in this much bigger way. There's all kinds of ways that we lie to ourselves and believe the lives about sin. That's how sin works. Sin never quenches sins appetites it only expands it 
Let me just say that one more time for my high school and middle school friends. Sinning a little bit is never going to quench the thirst of the greater sin. Never. And man, so many times, especially at that age, you think, oh, it's just this one little thing. And then it'll be, oh, man, it's going to expand. Because as a 49, nearing 50-year-old man, the people I've talked to, oh, I just started right here. And then it expanded. It's taken over my whole life. Number three, sin makes great boasts in order to scare you into meeting its demands. Peter describes it as a roaring lion. It, it roars to scare you. If you don't give in, rah, your life's going to be destroyed. And so you hear that in your mind. And so that's what Ben does. Ben doesn't get his second demand. So what does he say? Rawr, he makes himself really big. And he says, hey, Ahab, if you don't give in, your life's going to be dust. So you could be a businessman here and you could say, if I just don't, if I, if I don't give in, if I don't play by these unfair rules, what will happen to my business? I'll be unsuccessful. So I'll just give in this little area of my business that's really not the fair way to do it. But hey, everybody does it that way because what would happen? Oh, I might be a failure. See, it, sin makes itself big and you say, okay, I've got, I've got to give in. Could be a young woman here. And the roar is, if you don't give in to this boy's demands, oh, you never get married. You'll never have anybody. See, sin roars to hope that you would be scared enough to say, I'll give in this little bit. Sin is constantly blowing things out of proportion. For sin, if sin isn't absolutely put to death, it'll try another way of attack. Verse 22. See, Ben escaped. Remember in the first one? And what does the prophet say? He's coming back. If you don't put sin to death, this quote from John Owen on the front of your bulletin, let not the man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the neck of his lusts. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, doth but half his work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You know the scariest part of those movies that I wish I didn't see, the scary movies that I went to when I was in high school, like Halloween and all those things? I mean, yeah, they have some sort of gruesome things. I'm not recommending you see any of these, obviously. But sort of, you know, what caught me, the scariest part is, you know, it's always a teenage girl who's threatened. You know, it's never a Marine or something like that. So some teenage girl is threatened and sort of towards the climax of the movie, somehow she gets a hold of some weapon or something and she puts the guy to death. Right. And he's laying there and he's got some, you know, axe in his chest. And so you're like, you're you're the mover going, oh, gosh, OK, please end. Why did I pay for this? And then you're sort of the the, the camera's focused on the girl. and She's like, oh. You're like, yes, okay. And then they turn back to the where the man was. And what is it? He's gone. And the music starts again. You're like, no, I can't take it. <laughs> and then the movie ends and you walk out. And maybe he's in my car. <laughs> I mean, that's how those things work. You don't have to see him now. That's the movie right there. 
But see, you could think, I've got this thing dead. And you could be taking a breath and what can happen? You can look back and it's escaped. And I hate to say it, but you're going to be putting sin to death every day of your life. Please do not let anybody lead you into believe that at one point you could get perfect and not be fighting sin again. That's a lie. That's a lie that enables you to drop down your walls and sin has a much easier attack. Final point here. If roaring doesn't work, sin tries deception. First, it's going to try to scare you into doing something. And if you don't get scared, it's going to try deception. Verse 34, Ben doesn't want to be put to death, so he begins to make a treaty. He makes concessions. He promises Ahab that if he keeps him alive, the benefits will outweigh the consequences. If you keep something alive, thinking that, yeah, it's bad, but the benefits are better than the consequences, you're being deceived. Third and final point. First is the surprising gift of God's grace. Secondly is the the nature of sin. Third are the consequences of keeping sin alive. Verse 42. Several years ago, I went camping on Masonboro Island. Some families would get together at the end of the school year. We'd go out. What is that little area? It's that little bay. It's got a name. I never know it. But you know what I'm talking about. Park in the bay and you walk up towards Masonboro Island. There's a bunch of places you can camp. And so, of course, the kids are playing, you know, all the men are like pack mules carrying everything for one day. You know, it's practically I got my house out there. And so we're carrying everything to this place and we're setting up our campsite. And it's late in the afternoon and the sand's pretty hot. And so it's been hot, getting hot all day. And you're walking mostly barefooted and you're like, well, this sand's pretty hot. And I get up to the campsite and I'm sort of putting stuff down. And I step on this one spot of sand. I think, wow, that is Really hot. I mean, the sun has really been coming down on this one two foot by two foot square. And so I don't pay much attention to it. And I go back and get some more stuff. And then I step on this same spot again. I'm like, this is remarkable. And I do it about four times before my college education begins to kick in. (laughs) And you know what happens, don't you? Somebody had camped there the night before. They had built a fire here before. They hadn't put out the fire. What have they done? They just covered it up. And they didn't realize the sand is like a, an insulation. So I've been stepping on their fire for the last, you know, 20 minutes. Cussing them out there on Masonboro Island. And so I never forget, I told the, the students, the, ki- the kids, students, they were kids, they were my kids. Hey, go get the big bucket of water and get it out of the ocean. And we poured it on this square and the sand just bubbled. And then we dug it out, and you can see these coals still there. And I'm wondering if you've buried something. I mean, I can't see it. Looks like sand to me. But man, if we could get up underneath it, you buried some anger. You buried some lust. You buried some bitterness. You didn't actually put it to death. You think you were putting it to death by burying it, but you didn't actually. You just buried it. And every once in a while it comes and you like fan it back into flame. And it might be 
A year goes by, but it's not really dead. It's just buried. And if you have something that's buried and not put to death, it's going to burn you. It won't just burn you. It's going to burn someone else. Notice to me one of the sobering moments in this whole passage is at the very end, the prophet says, hey, it's not just going to be bad for you, Ahab. It's going to be bad for all of the people. Your sin has a cascading effect, Ahab. And because you didn't take care of your sin, it's going to cost your family. It's going to cost the whole nation. Adam, because you didn't take care of sin, it's going to affect all of humanity. Achan, because you stole something in the first battle, the whole earth is going to swallow up your family. David, because you couldn't avoid sin on that rooftop one day, a sword's never going to leave your family. It's going to create turmoil for a whole nation. Jeroboam, because you didn't put sin to death, that's going to lead to Ahab's sin, and Ahab's sin is going to lead to the destruction of Israel. Moms and dads, if your sin is not appropriately affect, uh, addressed, it will affect your family. See, one of sin's greatest lies is it's just affecting me. I'm just here in this room with the computer screen. It really doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. Nobody knows about this. It's consenting. No, that's not true. That's a lie. Moms and dads, if you've got something buried, it's not just going to burn you later. It's going to burn your family. It might burn generations. There are people here, I'm sure. I'm not, I don't know who you are, but could say, yeah, I, I've got generations of this problem in my family I can keep going back to. Because somebody somewhere along the way just kept it going and never put it to death. Business people, sin not appropriately dealt with affects every employee, every family. Ministry leader, pastor, sin kept alive instead of being put to death affects your entire team, your congregation, a university, a school, maybe a whole city. Sin is never singular. So what do you need to put to death? Maybe the little card would be a helpful thing. Hey, this this got buried. It never got put to death. Today, God's grace is flowing towards you. That's the good news. But you know, there will be a day when it will be judgment. But today, no matter your low point, the water is still flowing. Let's pray together. Lord, this has been a a very powerful hour together. Purposely designed by your hand for the people that are in this room this morning. So whether it's through a song or a testimony, a sermon, small conversation, everyone here was here for a divine appointment. May, may there be no Ahabs in this room this morning who would see the grace of God and walk away from it. Oh, what a danger. Today, the, the grace is flowing back no matter how many times you've 
you've walked away. It's still flowing this morning towards you. How has sin affected your life? What are the consequences? Lord, help us. Help us to see you. Help us to see ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.